I really love that Jackie Chan and Angela Baby spoke out for pangolins because I think they really helped put pangolins on the map. I think now, you know, pangolins are getting a lot of recognition for the potential link to the pandemic. But they had done some PSAs with us in 2016. We released some with Angela Baby. Jackie, of course, had worked with us since the early 2000s on tigers and rhinos and then pangolins. But I really appreciated that they used their voice to speak up for an animal that hardly anybody knew about. another episode of Animalia, where we bring wildlife conservation, climate change, and social justice together to help people connect the dots and get involved. All right, well, we are here today with Christina Valianos and Steve Blake from WildAid to talk about the work they do specifically on combating the demand side of the wildlife trafficking industry. And we're going to talk quite a bit about China. WildAid does work in many countries across the world. Christina is actually headquartered out of their San Francisco office where, where WildAid is headquartered, and Steve is based in China, but we're going to talk um, a lot about some of the work they do in China today. Christina and Steve, thanks for joining. Hi, thanks for having us. Hey, yeah, great to be here, James. Thanks. So, yeah, so I wanted to start, before we get into intros and background, I wanted to start talking about China since so much of the work WildAid does is in China, and Steve, you're, of course, headquartered in China. And... The question I have is just, you know, how would you phrase the current public perception of wildlife trafficking and wildlife rights in China? And this has been changing a lot, I think, in the last decade, in part due to the work of WildAid. But I think broadly speaking, even my time there in 2017 and 2018 started seeing some changes. But how would you describe the current public perception of wildlife trafficking and conservation in China? Yeah, well, the current perceptions of it have, have also changed dramatically just, just within this year alone. But, but before this, I mean, it's been, it's been steadily increasing in, in discussion and awareness of, of wildlife trafficking issues over the last, really over the last decade, especially the last couple of years. It's just, you just see more and more, more and more articles, more and more press stories, more and more discussion online. You just hear about it a lot more than you used to. And then, and then, you know, obviously with, with the COVID outbreak earlier this year, and it's, you know, this, this was around January, January, early February, and it, it's strong connection to that, that market in Wuhan that, that was selling wildlife. That really just triggered this massive public outpouring again on, you know, I, I think all these years of like the steady, the steady increase in awareness really just kind of, blew up, you know, with, with the announcement of, of, of another, another SARS-like virus. Um, you, you know, everybody knows SARS, what came from, came from wildlife, probably, probably from civic, cat, civic cats. And that, that was already in people's minds. And then it just really, it just really just erupted in this like massive public discourse all, all over online. Um, you hear people talking about it everywhere. News was talking about it. The government quickly issued all these all these regu- new regulations on consuming wildlife. It, it was just really like the main topic of the day for a long time. And then over the year, obviously things have changed <laughs> pretty dr- dramatically here. Now it's, 
it's it's quickly been quieted after for for many reasons that, that that I can get into later. But I think just in general, it's it wildlife issues, wildlife trafficking is is really it's a lot higher than I think people outside of China. Prior to getting into the to the scope of trafficking in China, which I, I do want to ask about, I'm wondering. One of the things that's been most disappointing for me here in the U.S. is seeing the lack of connection on a broad level people are making between the pandemic and wildlife trafficking and our, you know, disharmonious nature or relationship with the natural world. Folks like Christina and I, of course, in this country see that, but I don't see that covered by either news media. I'm not surprised it's not covered on the conservative side, but it's not covered on the liberal side either. And so I'm wondering if that it sounds like, Steve, what you're saying is that connection between the pandemic and, and the legal trafficking of wildlife was just much stronger on the, in the public perception in China, at least this year, than it was here in the U.S. Yeah, I would say that. However, that has kind of gone two steps back <laughs> since earlier in the year. I mean, I, th- I think as, as the situation became more political, it became... The, the pandemic became really serious, much more serious outside of China. And, and I think, you know, there's a lot of finger pointing at China. China obviously doesn't want to, doesn't want to take the blame. And, and like now the, the origins of the virus have kind of been muddied a bit, honestly, and you just don't really hear much talk about it anymore. Why do you think that is? What, what, what happened that, that sort of muddied those waters? The the main narrative, you know, about about the origin of the virus that was that was really what it is. It's after you know the whole world st- starts talking about China eating bats, and you know, and like these the, these lapses in, in, in management and, and whatever. Else. Like it 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 really did a, a a number on on PR for China, right? It was just it was just uh, really negative public perceptions around the world. China doesn't didn't want to take the blame. And and just in and through through media and and just general public discourse, it, it's just become much less about wildlife. And then you know, it could it could have been from frozen packaging on seafood. It could have come from somewhere else. It could have you know, all, all, all these things have started have started muddying those waters. And so and so, even though there was that really really strong that really strong public perception earlier in the year, and I, obviously I think that, that that still probably stays with people, but it's just not nearly talked about. It's, on the level that it was then, unfortunately. Has there been any actual science? I mean, there's scientific reason and evidence to show that there's a high probability and nothing's concrete. We probably will never know concretely the origin of the virus, but there's scientific evidence that supports that it, you know, could have come through a bat or a pangolin. For these other theories, I have not seen any actual like scientific evidence uh, or just more like anecdotal and hyperbole type type of explanations but i'm just curious is there scientific evidence on any sort of origin of this virus that is not um, a batter of pangolin no not that i'm aware of yeah i mean it, it's pretty much at least the, the way it's it's seen here is that it's not it's not known yet and so and so it could have not even been from that wildlife market in Wuhan, it could have been from somewhere else. It could have, who knows, right? And that's, that, that's yeah. We're, we're probably yeah. never going to know. To be fair, yeah. And that's probably. why I think I think it's time time spent, you know, sometimes debating the origin of the virus is not all that useful in the end. Either way, it's a signal. It just 
in terms of the scope of trafficking that happens in China, you know, obviously limited to what you can share, but what, what can you share about just helping our listeners understand uh, the role, you know, China plays today in, in wildlife trafficking? Yeah, well, I think pretty, pretty similar to many issues is that China is such a massive country, uh, massive population, just, you know, the biggest, it just seems like in everything in the world. Just, and so that scale really, really can make a very, what within China might seem like a very, very small issue, just amplified into being a much, much more impactful global issue, right? And so I, I think wildlife trafficking is is, is the same. China is crucial to solving the, the, the wildlife trafficking issue. I mean, China has a long history of of consuming wildlife, like 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 many cultures around the world do. However, when you couple that with with the population here, it 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 just like I said, it amplifies its impact. And so, like by by really addressing the wildlife trafficking issue here in China head on, that's it's really possibly the most important place to to really work to solve these issues. And there's a lot of encouraging things happening here that we can get into later, but it's yeah, absolutely crucial. Yeah. And I think that's an important point that, you know, it's not that China is uniquely evil or anything. It's like this, these, the evil of wildlife trafficking happens all over the world. The consumption of wildlife products happen all over the world. China just has a lot of people, <laughs> more, more people than any other place in the world. And, you know, the only country within a sniff of, of population competition to China is India. But of course, the China economy is much stronger. China, you know, by on a on a per capita level, has much more buying power than than the Indian population. So that is really, you know, where you know why China is a big focus. Yeah, and and something I I I, I think about sometimes is that you know why would we 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 also work in Vietnam. Vietnam also has a lot of has a lot of wildlife consumption issues as well. But Vietnam is essentially the size of of a province in China, you know, like population wise, right? Like it's similar to to, to several provinces in China, like Hunan province or Guangdong province, as far as population goes. So, so that that that's also you know a thing when you use the 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 scale of China is really is really where it's at. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Wild Aid. So WildAid, I believe, started, or it didn't start in 2000, but it was like rebranded. So in 2000. And, you know, I love, I love the kind of focus of WildAid, as you, as you kind of call it on the demand side instead of the supply side, right? Where there's a lot of effort and justifiably so going after poaching and, you know, the, 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 the financing, you know, leading to poaching and revitalizing national parks and all this is really important work. But Wild Aid seems to really focus on the demand side, saying, you know, look, we, we also need to address the the buying of the illegal wildlife products because, you know, and this is your slogan, right? When the buying stops, the killing can too. And I think it's really great that someone is is so focused on that. And, and Wild Aid seems to be the the top organization I've seen out there that 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 is focused on that. And we'll get into some of the the work you've done. What just quickly, what what brought you both to to Wild Aid? How did how did you find your way here? I can start. So I've been at Wild Aid for about seven years now. I had I live in San Francisco. That's where we're headquartered. I had been working at a, a for-profit company, was not really 
happy that I wanted to do something that was more meaningful in the environmental field. And so I found WildAid online when I was just doing a search of local organizations. And I thought it was much bigger than it was because I looked at the website and it had all these celebrities on it, like Jackie Chan and Leonardo DiCaprio and Yao Ming. And so I wanted to get involved. I actually had signed up to volunteer and there weren't a whole lot of volunteer opportunities, but eventually I did get in there and I ended up doing some consulting work, which then just led into a full-time role. And so I'm a program manager there. I help oversee all of our wildlife campaigns, specifically in Asia. So that includes working with Steve and the team in Beijing, with our team in Vietnam and in Thailand as well. And, and what about you, Steve? Yeah, for me, so I was already in Beijing working in the sort of NGO environment field. I've been living here in, in, in China for 15 years. And, and I, I remember like a year or two before I joined Wild Aid, I, I remember like biking around in Beijing and I, I saw, I saw a, a billboard with Yao Ming and, you know, saying not to eat shark fin soup. I just remember thinking, you know, I'd already been doing environmental stuff at the time, but it was, it was a lot more like on nature reserves and that kind of thing. And I remember thinking like, well, wow, that's a cool approach, you know, like, like, like that's, I had never seen something like that before. And, you know, so, so, so that was kind of how I first learned about Wild Aid was like seeing the product firsthand. And then, yeah, a year or two later, got the opportunity to join the organization. I think, I think the same year as Christina in 2013. So, so I've also been, yeah, I've also been in Wild Aid for, for seven years now. And, and now I'm, I'm managing our, our program here in, in China. So there's over, I think, 200 some odd ambassadors, Wild Aid, so public figures, celebrities, these types of folks. I'm just curious to ask you both, who is your favorite Wild Aid ambassador? And why? Steve, you start. <laughs> well, my favorite. There's, there's a few. It's really hard to choose one, right? I, I hate to give that. I hate to give that. <laughs> no, it's not a knock against the other ambassadors. Just one that stands out, or maybe like, yeah. <laughs> sure. I mean, I think the one who that's done the most for us has really put us on the map has been Yao Ming, and he's. You know, we, we did this ad with him in like 2009, I think, where he's pushing away a bowl of shark fin soup. And it's, you know, it's just an advertisement that, that, that's run here. There's, there's thousands and thousands of advertisements every year in China. But like people still remember that now. I still hear people mention that. Like when, when they ask what I do, I say I work at this organization. You know, I say the slogan, they know it. Like, oh, yeah, Yao Ming and the shark fin. You know, like that was over 11 years ago. Like how, how often... Does anybody remember, you know, a an ad or public service announcement from that long ago in their lives? It's it's he's really just been incredibly important to our work here, and he's he he like knows these issues so well. You don't have to give him any talking points. You know, he just speaks on it, speaks about it on his own, and 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 has has really done a lot for us over the years. So even though there's so many really cool ambassadors that we've worked with, I mean, he's he's just really kind of tops the cake for it for me at least. And for the listeners that don't know Yao Ming, you know, he's a NBA basketball player. He played in the league for I think close to seven or eight years for the Houston Rockets and was one of the first, maybe not the first player from China to play in the NBA. It was seven, seven, four is Yao Ming, right? Is that the right height? It's something seven, incredible like that. Yeah. Seven, four. He's very tall. <laughs> and, 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 but I, I think, can you just real quick on the Yao Ming topic, just sum up the the size of his celebrity i i think folks here even that have remember yao ming because you know he he was an all-star couple couple years in the nba but you know obviously his celebrity status here like never hit the even the top nba player status but can you just give us a sense like would you 
is is like would you compare Yao Ming to Michael Jordan in, in the in the US? Not from career like but just from like celebrity size and, and influence or how how it just gives give folks a sense of like the the scope and scale of Yao's, you know, kind of Yao's celebrity in China? I mean he's an absolute icon. Right. He's in, he's, he's never had any smudge against him. You know, he's, he's, he's always been incredibly honest and, and, and just did wonderful things for, you know, in the league, his playing was really good. Right. And he also did great things for Chinese comeback. He's done a lot of charity work. He's, he's just incredibly respected, incredibly revered. And, and, you know, whenever we were, were working with him a lot, that was like at the height of his, you know, he, he was still in the NBA and just at the absolute top of, of, of any kind of in, influential list here in China. And he's, you know, he's, he's really like a, he's a hero and, 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 and he's, he's, he's so tall as well as another thing. It's like whenever, when, so when, I mean, just, just whenever <laughs> it's true, whenever he, like he, he appears in public, I mean, people just kind of like, I remember, I remember this one time we did, we, we did the, we did the premiere of, of a documentary film we did with him and he, he had to walk, you know, walk through this red carpet through kind of like a big open space, a big public space in this, in this um, shopping mall. And like people just were all lining, you know, like it was like this atrium style, like just on, on, on the, on the, the openings, like all the way up. He just saw like, it was just a mass of people and everyone like just with their, you know, mouths dropped like, ah, oh, there's Yao Ming. You know what I mean? He just, he just conjures up this. Yeah. Just there's, iconic. there's no going incognito for you. Exactly. Yeah. And he can't put on a hoodie and some shades <laughs> Yeah, and blend and blend in. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and I think he's such a champ too. Like as Steve was just talking about, we did this documentary with him and he went to, I think he was in Kenya a couple times with us and he was flying on like these little tiny planes and he had to just like hunch over the whole time. He was such a sport to go all these different places with us in these cars that didn't fit him. And I think never complained. And was happy to go back and just for the cause. Yeah, he seems like such a humble and and like just big hearted, like his like his heart uh, sort of matches his size in a way. <laughs> um, totally. And uh, yeah, he's. I, I mean, I've, I've never met him or interacted with him, but from what I've read about him and, and seen about him, yeah, he seems like just a an icon, as he, as you said, and the cherished cherished figure in China uh, and around the world. Christina, what about you? Who's who's the if, who's the wild aid ambassador that stands out to you. So aside from Yao, I think that was a great choice, Steve. I really love that Jackie Chan and Angela Baby spoke out for pangolins because I think they really helped put pangolins on the map. I think now, you know, pangolins are getting a lot of recognition for the potential link to the pandemic, but they had done some PSAs with us in 2016. We released some with Angela Baby. Jackie, of course, had worked with us since the early 2000s on tigers and rhinos and then pangolins. But I really appreciated that they used their voice to speak up for an animal that hardly anybody knew about. And kind of yeah. the nature's underdog, the yeah. pangolin. We've 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 talked a lot about pangolins here at Animalia and, and fallen in love. But of course, you know, Christina, we had you at the pangolin conference mm-hmm. that we did. Yeah. And Jackie also just seems like such a humble Nice guy. Yeah. Uh, and, he, I have gotten to meet him, luckily. He was he was pretty hilarious on the shoot. He brought pastries for everybody. He seems like he'd be funny. Crack jokes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love what Wild Aid does and have been, you know, sort of impressed by you all since since getting to know you. I wanted to just dive in next into really just understanding the sort of science behind Wild Aid's work. And the use of mass media and celebrity to make trafficking 
you know, more taboo and uh, kind of kind of root out some of that demand. And maybe the best way to do this is to just take a, a case study. So if either one of you want to volunteer a specific campaign that, you know, you remember some data around or can or quickly look up, I think that would be the best way to do it just to sort of understand why Wild Aid does the work you do and, you know, how you know, how do you, how you know it's working? All right. So overall, as, as we kind of talked about, we're trying to reduce global consumption of wildlife products. And we do this through increasing public and political support for conservation efforts. So mainly we're operating these large scale communications campaigns throughout Asia, but also in Africa. And we're trying to strengthen enforcement efforts, trying to advocate for and support policy changes around the illegal wildlife trade. And so as uh, we just talked about, we obviously are recruiting these high-profile, well-respected spokespeople, but they're conveying culturally sensitive messages for each campaign, trying to reach targeted audiences that we've identified as some of the biggest buyers potentially. But we don't always do, like, we don't zone in on one specific type of buyer. We're trying to create a societal change so that it becomes kind of publicly unacceptable to consume a product. You can maybe think of it like, all the campaigns against smoking in the U.S. or I guess globally. So where we're trying to just show that it's this negative behavior, uh, we want people to change and avoid those negative behaviors in the future. This will create the societal shift where the consumption of endangered species products just is, is socially taboo. And we think that these celebrities really draw it in. And so Steve can maybe go through some specific examples that we've had in China. Yeah, real quick before the specific examples, just on that note, Christina, I'm curious how, and I think I think you do a great job with this, but I'm curious how you get there and how you think about this. How do you balance, like walking that that tightrope between, you know, truly putting down, you know, the purchasing and consumption of wildlife of wildlife items and products without going too far into the shaming that can have like the opposite effect as we see, you know, we see this uh, big problem in the U S political scene, right. Where each side is constantly shaming the other. And that almost like, like strengthens your resolve to, to not change. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, like it's a, an attack and now I'm on the defensive. How do you, how do you walk? How do you, how do you think about the way you walk that line? So I think our first step is always education. And we've found, you know, we, we do these baseline surveys, generally these public awareness surveys, um, or we historically did, which would kind of set the tone and show us trends about different people's purchasing behaviors or, you know, why they were interested or what they knew. And back in like 2006, for instance, we found that with shark fin people, it translates, Steve, you can correct me on this. I think it translates to fish wing soup instead of like shark fin soup. And so people didn't, they weren't aware that it was the fin of a shark. They weren't aware about finning or the cruelty involved with that. With ivory and elephants, some people thought that tusks are shed just like a deer sheds its antlers. They didn't know that, you know, three quarters of the elephant's face is cut off to get that tusk. So there's a there's an educational gap a lot of times. And so I think that we already gained some people once they're made aware of the cruelty involved or they understand that the animal is killed. And they don't want to consume the product that way. We also recognize that there are always going to be diehard consumers and they maybe don't care about animal welfare or they don't care about maybe even like the ecological damage that it could do, you know, losing elephants, for instance. But maybe they, you know, maybe a health message appeals to them more. So for eating shark fin, 
we can talk about the different contaminants, the heavy metals and cadmium, mercury that's maybe in the fin and maybe reach people that way. So I think we, we come at it trying to first make sure everyone is aligned with what the damage is either to the environment or to health or the cruelty involved. And then I think we're still, I mean, it's, we're not trying to shame people out of it, but we're hoping that those kinds of knowledge gains will kind of set the stage for people not wanting to, to perform that behavior. So Steve, do you want to follow up on that with like some of the numbers of an example? I think you mentioned possibly the Pangolin case study just to demonstrate the effectiveness of this approach. Yeah, sure. I mean, we, we have quite a few ex- examples from our work here in China because we've, we've been working in China for about 15 years doing really big high profile campaigns. And so each, each species that we work on is different, right? The, you know, the, the, the scale of consumption and like the, the reasons for consumption and like the legality behind it. Like it's, it's all, it, it's all kind of different, but I can, I, I can give a little bit of background on, 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 I think one of our more recent successes, which is on pangolins. We started, we started doing work on pangolins in 2015 and, 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 launched like a big campaign in 2016. If you look at like, what we've done is, is we, we, we looked back at, at some, some media figures from pre-2015 and just like getting, getting a, like a, a sense of the volume of discussion, articles, whatever about pangolins in, in, in Chinese media and social media. And it was, there was just, it was just like a few drops in the bucket, right? Every now and then you get something about, you know, the pangolin issues, but not very much at all. And then like you, st- you start seeing this, when we started launching these campaigns, our first one was with the celebrity Angela Baby. She has a huge social media following, big, big, big celebrity here. And we did these campaigns 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, this year. Every year, you, pangolins have, have, have really been very visible, right? They're, they're on billboards in the subway. They're, you know, it's all over social media, all these different accounts. Just through our campaigns alone, there's a lot of other things happening. But you look at like the, the starting in 2015, 16, like the amount of discussion the amount of articles, the amount of mentions of penguin has just exponentially every year. It's just grown and grown and grown and grown. And and in the meantime, you started seeing s- stronger legislation about penguins. Penguin, it, it's a really complicated issue. The the consumption and the the legality behind it. It's it, it's it could go into it forever. But but it, it's it's going in the right direction now. Like on the policy wise, the public is much more aware of of penguin issues. You know that we've seen from our our survey work and. And just doing like a media analysis, the com- like you know, it went from penguins have gone from this 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 kind of obscure, not really talked about issue, to sometimes like like every now and then it seems like once or twice a year it seems like penguins become like a, a trending topic online, like people talk about them a lot now, and it's and, and then obviously a really big one was was earlier this year when there were there was potential links to the outbreak of of, of COVID through penguin being an intermediary host of the virus and like that that again like this kind of brought penguins to the forefront again and it's it's just been remarkable to see and and so so that's one thing that we do we we kind of help make these animals into something that's not you know just forgotten about not talked about like it's really kind of front and center you see it around and it becomes a discussion point and and over time that also generates all kinds of other other things, whether it's policy, stronger enforcement, you know, obviously reducing demand within the public, it, it just becomes a an issue in society. And, and that's, you know, that was the same thing with, with shark fin 10, over 10 years ago, same thing. So it, that's just another side of, I think, how our work can, can help impact these issues. Yeah, absolutely. How do you measure 
you know, the, and it's, it's possible to measure this, you know, with true precision, but how do you measure the effectiveness of certain campaigns? You know, what, what do you find? And then based on that measurement, what do you find, you know, works and, and doesn't work as well? Yeah, there's there's no good one way to do it. You can do, and we're trying different ways of doing it, right? Like we've we've done kind of like a street side survey, like like with through third party companies. You know, like once people walk walk past a billboard, for instance, ask them for you know take a quick survey and they answer some, answer some questions about the billboard they just saw, whether they remembered it, what kind of impact it had on you, that kind of thing. Um, you can do that kind of thing. You can also do more like online random surveys again, like through third party vendors that are you know professionals at doing public opinion surveys and then you you can also just kind of look at the numbers that you generate online i mean you can you you can tell what resonates with people and what doesn't right and then and then again like over time you can do maybe more survey work later to see like what if if people actually remembered that campaign right you can ask like if have you ever seen a a campaign on for instance sea turtles and if somebody says yes you know you can ask if they remembered the celebrity that that was that was promoting sea turtles, and you can see like whether they answer that is you know correctly is like the celebrity that you had had been promoting for that sea turtle issue. You can see like whether they, they really re- remembered it or not. If they actually remember that, that, I think that's a pretty good sign that that, that something stuck with them. And so so like I said, there's there's a lot of ways to to, to judge it, but it, it's there's no there's no one 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 way to to do it. And more indirectly, we can look at things like price declines or decreases in the availability of certain products in markets through investigations where we hire people to go look at them specifically. We saw that like with the Manta campaign, Steve. I don't know if you remember the, the figures around that, but there was a huge decline in the number of gill rakers that were available in markets in Guangzhou. And we had done like a targeted campaign there. Yeah, that one was really interesting, right? Like, uh, the consumption of manta gill rakers was was pretty confined to Guangdong province, and it was kind of a new thing that, that had emerged like in the last ten years or so. But it really gotten to pretty high levels there, and so it so we kind of quickly got onto it. Did, did a lot of campaigning in, in, throughout Guangdong, and then working with, with a lot of like local media as well to do reports on on the health consequences of consuming the stuff. There's a lot of heavy metals in these gill rakers, you know. And anyway, we we did a, a very campaign on it and after yeah after a couple years quickly like i i think really quickly it saw dramatic declines in the availability you know public perceptions of it and you know doing market surveys later on like pretty much the the remaining people that were still selling these gill rakers were pretty much selling off their stock and it was it was a pretty dramatic decline in in the consumption of this of of of, of this product and so yeah that i think that that was when like the the quickest the quickest campaigns that, that, that we've ever we've ever done you know like I, I, some of these other ones i think will take a long long time to to you know over time to really stamp it out but the manta issue has been very successful i think do you do all the creative in-house or do you do you partner up with creative agencies or, or does does wild Aid essentially act as the creative agency turnkey for these projects so the way we do i mean i, I think it's probably different in every market that we work in, and Christina might know more about how we work in other markets. I, I pretty much focus on just China, but in China, we primarily our creative comes from agencies. Agencies they they donate their time to us, and they they they, they will do the service for free, working with us. Like every now and then, we've had a creative in house, but it's it's much more common to come from professional marketing. Some of the biggest marketing agencies um, 
in the world. And, you know, there's some good local ones here in China that we work with as well. So that's where the creative comes from. Yeah, that's the same for other campaigns in other countries. Got it. Well, so I want to shift then to talking a little bit about, you know, the the culture around traditional Chinese medicine and, you know, its role that it still plays in wildlife trafficking. This is something that I talk a lot about. And and I guess to start with, you know, what how, how would you describe you know, if to the, the layman person, the person that is not so aware of these things, you know, and said, Hey, what is, what is traditional Chinese medicine? And, and, and why is this, what, what, what is the relationship to wildlife trafficking and conservation? How would you, how would you answer that question? So traditional Chinese medicine, it, it's, it's a whole different approach to health, I think, than, than, than I think that what, in the West than the way we approach it. I mean, Chinese medicine really focuses on addressing the symptoms of something rather than, than addressing the, 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 uh, gee, I'm blanking on the word. But anyway. The underlying issue. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, Chinese medicine works on, on addressing the under, underlying issue and, and, it, it, you know, incredibly long history, obviously in China of, 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 of these practices, it's very varied. It goes from acupuncture to massage to, 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 you know, actual, medicine that, that, that you eat, which is made of a, of a bunch of ingredients, right? Mostly plant ingredients. By far, it's mostly plant ingredients. And there's thousands of, of ingredients in Chinese medicine. And there's really a small handful of animal products in Chinese medicine. However, <clears throat> those have become very problematic in recent years because these animals are all, you know, increasingly endangered or they're being raised on farms to to provide the ingredients in the medicine. I mean, some of the problematic species, there's tigers, rhino horn, pangolins, bear, bear bile. There, there, there's, there's, there's just a few very problematic species that are, that are still involved in Chinese medicine. And it kind of, at least in, in the conservation community who's working hard to protect these animals, it, it, it oftentimes gives, gives the whole um, industry of Chinese medicine, a bad name, just over, over, over like these, these, these very few, what I, what I just didn't think of is, is, is problem spots. I don't know if Christina, you have anything to add. We had a workshop a few years ago that had a lot of experts in the field and also practitioners themselves. And one thing that really came out of it is that, you know, in the U S for instance, thousands of people, I think there are something like 40,000 people who practice traditional Chinese medicine or acupuncture. Um, and none of them use endangered species products. And same goes for Hong Kong. I think it's illegal. Um, you, you can't use endangered species legally in TCM. And as Steve said, it's something like, I think 85% of ingredients are herbal, and then animals make up like about 10% and the rest are minerals. So I think there's there's definitely a way to practice traditional Chinese medicine without using endangered species. And that's you know what the practitioners learn in the US at different universities. And I think there have been articles coming out in recent years, especially now linked with pangolins and the pandemic, just saying that, you know, there was a quote from Dr. Li Sheng Lao, who had said something about like, he thinks that the wildlife industry has infiltrated traditional medicine and that it's a really negative thing. And, you know, there are a lot of practitioners, I think, within who practice and, and adhere to all of the cultural traditional values of field, but they don't use endangered species and they don't want to. So I think it varies. And I think, you know, you, you definitely can't just 
condemn traditional medicine. Like I think there's there's so much value in it. Yeah, it's it's good to point that out, right? That there are aspects of traditional Chinese medicine that you know include plant based and herbal based treatments, and you know Steve mentioned massage and acupuncture that don't involve trafficking whatsoever. And unfortunately, even though it's a maybe a small percentage of traditional Chinese medicine, it's a large percentage of wildlife trafficking that it is occupying. Uh, do you think that those that do push those wildlife products, the rhino horn, pangolin scales, tiger bones in the world, in the name of traditional Chinese medicine, do you, do you think they understand that essentially it's just a placebo effect that is happening for people that, you know, get a benefit from it. And um, I mean, it doesn't, a placebo effect is still an effect, but do you think they understand it's a placebo effect or do you think they, they still truly believe there's something scientific that is happening or do you think they understand it's a placebo effect, but if it's an effective placebo effect, they just don't want to lose it. From my experience in China, people that, you know, the way that Chinese medicine is often, talked about people ask like they use the term whether you believe in Chinese medicine, right? That's kind of how it's addressed in, in like people that 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 believe in it, believe strongly in it. They 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 really think like that that it works. And they and you know like trying to tell them that it doesn't work is 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 really condescending and it's just something that that, that we don't do. But people that you know they they strongly believe that that, that these products have impacts on whatever whatever they're trying to, to whatever issue the health issue they're trying to solve. They don't see it as a as a placebo effect. They 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 don't really care, honestly, I think whether a scientific study shows you that that it might not be as effective as not because they they they, they have a story of somebody that that consumed you know a certain product and got better. Right. Whether it's whether it's a normal a normal TCM product or something that, you know, wildlife based or, you know, acupuncture or, or whatever. I mean, people, they, they deeply believe in, in its, its effectiveness. So two things. So one is that I think a lot of practitioners, they don't, it's not that they don't think that there's value in the species, but they maybe recognize alternatives. So for pangolin scales, for instance, apparently there's something like 125 suitable alternatives that I think are mostly herbal and they achieve the same kind of relief of symptoms that apparently pangolin scales so you know would according to textbooks in you know these TCM textbooks so another thing that i would point out is that rhino horn for instance sure it's been in the pharmacopoeia but it was for other uses it wasn't for curing cancer same thing with pangolin scales you know they're in there to treat rheumatism or promote lactation but they weren't ever used historically to cure cancer i think those are made up cures that are, you know, peddled by the wildlife industry. They're not actual practitioners, as far as I know, prescribing treatment for cancer using rhino horn or pangolin scales. Steve, maybe correct me there if I'm wrong. Yeah, that all gets a little murky on, on, you know, some people say it does or some people say it does that. Also, there's another thing about, about, I think, the issue on TCM that's really interesting is there's a lot of debate about it within China. That, that I think people might not realize. I mean, it's like I said, a lot of people deeply believe in it and a lot of people deeply don't believe in it <laughs> here in China as well. I think that voice often doesn't get, get heard. I mean, there's a lot of, you see discussions online a lot about, about people really just kind of, you know, trashing on TCM quite a bit. And, and there was even a, a law that was passed a couple months ago that, that would, would criminalize the, the, you know, slandering, essentially slandering 
TCM that that obviously got got rebuked here a, um, a week or two ago, but they were about to pass that law just because there was there was so much debate about it, right? And so it's not it's not that like just everybody believes in it. There's a lot of people that don't, and and people that, that don't believe it also feel strongly that that it that it can be harmful. Is is there a, is it a generational divide or is it cross generation? So do you is there less sort of allegiance to TCM in you know the younger you know, Chinese generation. So think like 18 to 34 versus older, or does it kind of carry through, you know, equally, you know, on both sides, generation by generation? I think it carries through. I mean, I don't have any, you know, full numbers on this, but just, just, just my, 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 you know, personal observations. I think, you know, there's the older generations, I think will probably have higher numbers of people that, 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 follow TCM, but there's still plenty in younger generations that do. It's not like the younger generations just scoff at it. I mean, plenty of people, plenty of people in younger generations um, are also, you know, very into TCM. So, and just maybe just to wrap things up, just, just curious about, you know, some of the goals and targets for 2021 for wild aid and what, you know, given everything that's happened this year and on a global level, you know, do you see your strategy shifting a little bit? Do you see Wild Aid, you know, kind of doing more work, like framing things around the pandemic? Do you do you want to kind of transcend that quickly and just get back to some of the the sort of work and, and messaging pre-pandemic? You know, what what what's what does next year look like for your organization? Yeah, so I think the pandemic has definitely framed a lot of our goals for 2020 and for 2021. So we pretty immediately, as soon as there was the link, the potential link to pangolins. Of course, you know, we, we and I think every other conservation organization has always been aware of the potential link between wildlife and a zoonotic disease transmission and, and a p- possible pandemic. And so we kind of launched really quickly into preparing campaigns to target, to try to end commercial urban bushmeat consumption. So, of course, we're not going after subsistence hunters, but just looking at these markets that are you know, potentially in the major Chinese cities, in Vietnamese cities, and all around the world. And so we have campaigns going. Steve can talk about it in China, but also we have this program in Vietnam and in Thailand and also in some of our African countries like Cameroon and Nigeria. We'll really be pushing for this in the next year, kind of with our same approach. And it also, the pangolin campaign dovetails into this as well, because, you know, people are eating pangolins and that's a potential disease transmission. I think another priority would be our sea turtle campaign, which Steve talked about and maybe can chat a little more about. Yeah. So here in China, at least next year, we're going to be really continuing, like, I think, our same methodology, but addressing some some newer issues. And one, one that Christina mentioned is, is really focusing on the consumption of wildlife, right? I mean, we, we there's a lot of, obviously, as we're seeing with the pandemic, there's a lot of very, very dire consequences and high, very high risk, high risk behavior involved in that. And so we are, we want to keep that visible, you know, don't let people sort of move on, move past it. I think that kind of happened with, say, with SARS back in, in 2003, right? For a while after that, after that happened, you know, I think people were, were, were probably very weary of consuming wildlife and it, it just kind of slowly reemerged, right? And we want to try and keep that from happening again, not just in China, but but in all the markets that, that 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 we that we work in. And so we were going to be doing campaigns to keep that very visible. And yeah, like Christina said, sea turtles is something that, that we, we've worked on for a few years now here in China. 
sea turtles, are re they, they really kind of represent a lot of marine issues, right? Because sea turtles kind of embody, they're, 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 they're found in smuggling. They are, they're impacted by overfishing. They're impacted by climate change. And, and one thing that they're really impacted by is, is ocean plastic, right? And that's something that, that's, that's going to be like a new program for us <clears throat> here in China next year is really addressing ocean plastic issues because just single-use plastic consumption is, is just really, I think, all over the world is out of control. And nowhere is that more, you know, the impacts of that more visible than in the oceans. And, and so, I, you know, with, with Wild Aid, we have such great celebrity resources, media resources, you know, government partnerships. Like, we're, we're really well-positioned to really make the plastic consumption issue very kind of front and center in, in the public discourse. And that's something that we're going to work on next year as well. Very cool. Yeah, we, we work with sea turtles here at Animalia with uh, Latin America Sea Turtle Conservation in Costa Rica. And uh, what a what a incredible animal. You're right, it's sort of a, a lightning rod for just marine conservation in general. Because like so much work, so much of the work that needs to be done to help conserve sea turtles has a, a positive effect on, on, on all other marine life. And uh, yeah, so glad, glad to hear it. Huge, huge sea turtle fan. Awesome. Well, the usually finish up with some quick kind of rapid fire questions, which are just going to ask you both, just give me the first thing that comes in mind. You don't have to explain it or anything, but just, uh, just the first thing that kind of pops in your head. We'll go Christina, then Steve, just so you're not asking each other <laughs> who wants to go first. So the first question is, can you share a, a book that has left an imprint on you in the world of climate or conservation that you recommend other people read? First thing that popped into my head is a book called Ishmael. It's Daniel Quinn. It's it's not really, it's a fiction book, but it, it's an interesting one. Otherwise, I really always loved Animal, Vegetable, and Miracle by Barbara Kingsolver. And she kind of goes back and starts working on a farm. She she has her own farm basically with her family. And it's just a really interesting dive into becoming self-sustainable. Great. Uh, Steve? Mine is a book called The Tiger. It's, it's not the most inspiring name for a book, but it's, it's this story of a tiger in Siberia here, like, like, like on, the, on the border of China that, that, had, that had attacked and killed a few, a few hunters. And it just kind of goes through the region and the history of the Siberian tiger and just tigers in general. And, and it's, it's just it, it's a it's a really cool you know true story account of one of the the most remarkable animals in the world. I feel like and, and I, I've I've read it twice and it just I find it just so interesting. Yeah, the tiger. I can't remember the name of the author, but but it's it, it was from maybe ten years ago. Very well. Those are looking it up, you probably should search the tiger book. And search <laughs> the tiger. <laughs> you may not. Yeah. You may not find your way to the book. Um, yeah. Okay. What about a, a a film or a docu series or TV series? Anything else in in that in the you know audiovisual world that had an impact on you in the same in the same space that you recommend people see? One that I actually just watched last week was the Patagonia film Public Trust. It's it's a little outside of the animal conservation world, but it's all about like what is happening to public lands in the U.S. in Alaska with Anwar or with the Boundary Waters, Bears Ears. It was a really well done documentary. I'd highly recommend it. And I'm going to be a little, <clears throat> a little shameless and promote a, a, a film that we <laughs> produced and released. We, we released it first here in China. It's on sea turtles, actually. It's with it's with the celebrity Eddie Pung, and he goes around the world and visits people that are working to protect sea turtles. And it's a it, it's it's a 
I think it's 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 a really nice film. It's not too long. It was originally in Chinese, released here in China, and then in the last month or two, it's been up on Amazon Prime. It's called Between the Sea and Shore, starring Eddie Pong, and it's it's just a great you know it's it's a very kind of uplifting I feel like film, inspiring film on on sea turtles, and it shows a lot of kind of what's happening here in China as well. So that's mine. Awesome. And what is the favorite, your favorite wildlife for each of you? Your favorite species? Well, my favorite species that we work on, pangolins. Favorite wildlife, bison. Oh, cool. You know the horrible dad joke, right? I don't think so. Really? I don't want to share it. What did the buffalo say to his son as he left for college? <laughs> oh, bison. <laughs> Great one. Keep telling it. My my favorite animal is a tiger. It, it's just I just find that species just endlessly interesting. I can I can just read about you know tigers forever. I just there's just always something new to find in them. Just a just a totally interesting animal and just absolutely beautiful. Awesome. And then what's one action that you wish people would would take in, in sort of larger scale? So I was thinking of something that's accessible for the majority of people that they could do to contribute to slowing down the climate crisis or, or standing up for nature, the natural world. What's one thing you wish people would do more of or do less of that, that stands out to you? Sure. I think a really simple one that everyone can do is reduce your use of single-use plastic. I think it can be in any form, whether it's bringing your own, I mean, you can't really do it during a pandemic, but you know, bringing your own Tupperware or not getting takeout and eating there or, you know, just of course, there's the plastic bags, there's straws, there's but there's bigger issues as well. I think it's it's very accessible. It's a low entry touch point. Everyone can make a difference. One thing that I always I always tell people here is a little different. It's not necessarily using less of something, but it's it's just appreciating the animals around us. I feel like uh, is like a really good place to start for for. I'm sure probably listeners um, to this podcast probably don't have this problem, but I think a lot of, a lot of people just don't just they, they take for granted the animals around us, like the birds. The, the, the things you see in the city. And I think like an, an appreciation for animals really starts with, with recognizing that, you know, these animals are wildlife too, and they're, they're, they're fascinating. They're beautiful. And I think it can really start a, a, a sort of new respect and a new appreciation for wildlife just by enjoying the animals that you see around you in the city. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Well, great. Well, thank you both for, for joining and and you know the work you do at wild aid and it's it's been a pleasure to to learn about and the commercials are great the ads are great the creativity is great and the of course the mission above all else is is fantastic so so kudos to you both for dedicating yourselves to it and yeah and hope for great things ahead uh, for next year for wild aid yeah thanks james this is fun thanks so yeah. much james thanks for having us